The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. They have transformed, they have changed with the times. They don't even do what they used to do 50 years ago. That's what we need to do as a church. Times are changing, technology is advancing, people are different. We need to adapt. So the mission of the church always needs to be changing. And I was like, whoa, that, that's dangerous. No, the mission of the church never changes. So that's what we're looking at today. It's already been revealed. So let's look at the revelation of the New Testament primarily that is the authority on the church, what it is and what we should be doing. Back to basics, the mission of the church. Three points. Three points. What should the church be doing? Real simple. I'm just going to give you the outline up front. I'll give you all three points and then we'll go back. These are in order of priority, by the way. Order of priority. Which also, this could be controversial in light of a lot of church growth books that have been written and are bestsellers. Priority number one is exaltation of a local church. Exaltation. Specifically, worshiping Christ. Number two. After exaltation and out of exaltation, out of a heart of worship, One of the byproducts is edification. What do we do when we come together as a church? Edification. Specifically equipping the saints. And then number three. Again in chronological order. Giving God his due first because he is the priority. Then dealing with the saints, the body of Christ. And then after that, the outflow is evangelization. Reaching the lost. That is the order. And it can't be mixed up, broken, changed. Exaltation, edification, evangelization. Now, before I go back to the details of those three main points that we're supposed to be about as a local church, I went through some websites this week in local churches, and I wasn't just picking obscure websites either. I wanted to pick evangelical churches, at least in name, uh, influential Protestant churches, well-known influential denominations, uh, influential well-known Christian personalities that you'd be familiar with, some in our area, some abroad. And just reading through their mission and their priorities, and it was frightening, actually. There are a lot of really good churches, and then there are some that are prominent and are an authority, and yet they're missing the mark. And here's just some of the priorities that I read or that were being postulated as priorities as the mission of the church. Try to go quickly. We need to advance contextualization. You may need a dictionary as I go through here. Advance contextualization? Yeah, I don't, well, yeah whatever. Um, that's confusing. Uh, we need to be about urban ministry. I mean, that's the priority. I've had people come to this church over 10 years and tell me, I wanna, I'm want i looking for a church, and I want, I'll want i join your church, but if its priority is about urban ministry. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, what? What, what is urban ministry? I did not learn that in seminary. I didn't see that in the book of Acts. But anyway, I found out what it was later. Uh, we need to be about fostering spiritual formation, whatever that is. These are all terms I was unfamiliar with. It's like, wait, What? I feel like a P. I'm this big. All that biblical education went to waste at seminary and college. I don't because I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, we need to be. Uh, oh, we need to realize this is a good one. Found out this week. We need to realize incarnational community. Incarnational community. I don't know if that gives you a warm fuzzy. Um, we need to cultivate missional activity. Missional. That was another. That's huge today. We need to be missional. I'm looking for a church that's missional. I've had several people over the years tell me that. Is your church missional? We're looking for a missional church. And again, the same blank stare for me. 
What, what are you talking about? Um, I'm not sure. We need to reach the de-churched. That's a, a purpose statement of one local church. We, need to, we are about reaching the de-churched. Again, I was like, I, whoa, I don't know what that means. We need to reach pre-believers. We're about reaching pre-believers. Uh, wow, never heard of that one. We need to eradicate poverty. I told you about that. That was recent. That was back in November. That was a mission statement. Eradicate child poverty. I'm thinking Jesus couldn't do that. They're trying the impossible. But that's their mission. Um, we need to create green awareness. That's another mission statement on a, the home website of a church. Well-known denomination. That's a priority. Create green awareness. We need to, another one. We need to advocate universal health care. There will be universal health care when you get to heaven, is what I say. Uh, we need to, here's another one. We need to transform our cities. Very well-known, popular pastor. It's the heart of his message of what a church, a local church should be doing. Transform the heart of our cities, not just the people, but the actual cities, literally the buildings, the organizations, the gas station, etc. We need to take back our country. That was on a website. Take back our country. We need to be relevant, another church says. Um, I'm not advocating we be irrelevant. But I'm saying the mission and the priority, the main priority of the church is not being relevant. Uh, we need to promote reconcili- oh, racial reconciliation. And I just say, well, I can't do that. Only the gospel can. Salvation can. Jesus can. And then uh, we need to stop wars and fighting. And I'm thinking, wait, Revelation 19 says Jesus is going to come back and start a war, so I can't stop that either. I don't think that's the mission of the church. So the point, I mean, there's like a kernel of truth in every one of these, but there's a distorted point of emphasis and also interpretation and application of those things. So that none of those are the mission of the church as given by the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church, or by the apostles who are the foundation of the church or the New Testament, which is the authoritative book on the church. And I would propose in simple outline, these three things really are the priority of for us. And every other ministry that actually intersects with all these truths, we don't want poverty. We want to minister to the poor, which we've done in India and many other places. And many of you have done locally. We do that through our benevolence fund, literally right here, the needy. We believe in that ministry, but that's an outflow and a byproduct of these three priorities. And that's probably true of, of all of these things. We, we intersect with all of these. We care about all these issues. But it has to be done the right way, starting with the exaltation of Christ. Let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, Point number one, priority of the church. When we want Grace Bible Fellowship, this to be the priority. When you come to the church, what I mean by come to church, you know what I mean. It's not to the building. It's meeting with God's people on the Lord's day, as was the model of the New Testament. That's what going to church is. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the church gathered, the church assembled, formerly on the Lord's day. Just write down 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. And throughout those two chapters, you will see this phrase that Paul used. He's talking to the Corinthians as they were an assembled body of believers on the Lord's day to do formal ministry, to hear preaching, to pray together, to have communion, to see baptisms, to collect the offering. That is the context, the formal corporate gathering of God's people. That's what we're talking about. These are the priorities. 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 17, 18, 20, 33, 34, Paul says, when you gather together, when you gather together, when you assemble together. And then in chapter 14, he says the same thing. And then he says, when you assemble together as a church. That's 1 Corinthians 14, verse 19, and also in verse 23. So that's, that is the context. 
What is priority number one as we come together as a body of Christ? It's not to get my felt needs met. It is not to be entertained by the lovely music. Uh, It's not to be just seeing my friends and hanging out with them. Many of those things are, are blessings, but that's not the priority. It's not to come and critique all the ministries of the church. It's to come, first and foremost, if you're a believer, to meet God with God's people and exalt his name through worship. That's priority number one. Jesus was the model for us, as was the early church. So let's just look at those two key passages. Uh, We're going to start with John chapter 4. What should God's corporate assembly be about? And here's a prophecy that Jesus gave. Jesus did not talk much about the church in the four Gospels. But he did. And it was always of a prophetic nature because he didn't start his church yet. But in John chapter 4, he's witnessing to the woman at the well. We know that story. We've preached on it a couple of times. She's a Samaritan woman. She's not saved. Uh, She doesn't know who Jesus is. He reveals himself to her. He confronts her of her or exposes her sin, really. Then she's beginning to be convicted of her sin because of the power of Jesus' word and the Holy Spirit. And there's a slow removing of the veil over her spiritual eyes till the point where she recognizes Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But it happens incrementally throughout the conversation. So look at John chapter 4 as Jesus is interacting with her. He's showing her love. He doesn't consider her dirty or unclean. He's giving her the truth. He feels for her. He has compassion for her. Exposing her sin, but also revealing himself or the gospel. But he's also blunt with her. and He knows she's worshiping inappropriately, inadequately at this point. She doesn't have the fullness of worship because she doesn't have the fullness of the Old Testament. And so Jesus kind of semi-rebukes her, but also gives her more information. And he just tells the lady point blank, because you're a Samaritan, uh, starting at verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming. Here's the prophecy. An hour is coming in the future. I think he's talking about when the church begins. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain where Samaritans worship, nor in Jerusalem where Jews worship at the temple, will you worship the Father. Something's going to change in terms of when God's people assemble together to worship. It's not going to be localized in the temple in Jerusalem anymore. It's going to be universal and abroad and beyond. Fulfilled in the local church, wherever the local church gathers and satellites all over the world is what he means. Right now, as a Samaritan who doesn't believe the entire Old Testament, you, lady, verse 22, worship what you do not know. You have a lot of ignorance on your part. We, the Jews, who are fully informed, Jesus said, we worship what we do know in truth and the fullness of revelation. For salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's not legalistic. It's of the heart and the mind, first and foremost. And it's in keeping with God's revealed revelation in Scripture and in the words of Jesus. That's spirit and truth, not like the Pharisees. For such people, what people? People who worship God legitimately in spirit and in truth. From the heart in light of the revealed revelation of God. Such people true worshipers, the father seeks. That is a key phrase. The father seeks, the father seeks, the father seeks. You hear about seeker sensitive worship, seeker driven ministries. That's been going on for 30 years. People are writing church growth books about it. We, well, we need to be, uh, tending to the seekers, the seekers, the seeker, this, the seeker, that, uh, we need to modify our worship services 
in light of the attendance of the seekers who might be among us and be sensitive to them. And so let's banish the Bible and banish the organ and banish a tie and ban the tie because it's offensive. Sorry. Uh, and banish everything else because we want to appease the seekers. That's an ideology and philosophy very dominant in church growth today in evangelical Christianity. The seeker, the seeker, the seeker. I, I believe, according to Scripture, the greatest seeker is God the Father himself. He's the seeker, actually. What is he seeking? Something very specific. He is seeking worshipers. He is seeking true worshipers. That's what it says. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So one of God's main priorities as creator, savior, and judge is he is seeking to gather worshipers to himself. Why? Because he deserves worship. He deserves the glory. He is almighty, perfect God who created us. He is infinite. He is almighty. He is absolutely holy. And he deserves the creation, the worship of his creation. And it's priority number one. And when you go to Revel, what are you going to be doing in heaven? Priority number one for believers and angels and every creature in heaven. Priority number one is worshiping the Father, worshiping the Son, worshiping the Spirit. And it will be delightful. It will be fulfilling. It will be eternal. It will be mind-boggling. And from our perspective down here on, on earth right now, in our finiteness and our sinfulness, we can't even conceive of what that would be like. But believe me, the angels are fully uh, satisfied and in absolute glory right now as they just continually worship the father and give him his due that is the calling of god's people to praise him to worship him that's priority number one jesus said so made it clear the apostles modeled that when they began their churches and the father is the true seeker he's seeking true worshipers luke says jesus said it himself jesus why did you come into this world to seek and to save sinners jesus is the one who seeks and also the Gospel of John says the Holy Spirit seeks after sinners. So who is the true seeker? It's the triune God of the universe. And he's seeking sinners who might be saved and worship him. And that needs to be priority number one when we come together as God's people on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, as a corporate body. And we're going to see in Acts chapter 2, that's what the early church did. So let's go ahead and turn there, Acts chapter 2. We read that a little earlier of how Peter preached. He preached the Gospel. He had a ready audience. It was a holiday, holiday week, pilgrims from all over, devout Jews, looking for the Messiah. Jesus died. He rose again. He just ascended into heaven. The Spirit of God moves Peter. Peter preaches this powerful sermon about who Jesus is. There are thousands in the audience listening. They heard the gospel. They were pierced to the heart. They were convicted. They were moved by Almighty God. The veil was removed. They wanted to respond to the message of the gospel. They had a hunger for truth, and that's why they asked. Peter, about what do we do now in light of what you said and this truth about this Jesus whom was crucified on behalf of sinners? And Peter told him, repent. Repent. Admit your sin. Turn from your sin. You need forgiveness from sin. Go to the only one who can forgive you of sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and turn to him, each one of you, and then be baptized publicly to demonstrate the faith you've put in Christ. It's really that simple. And they did. It was amazing. There was a revival day one. You talk about church growth. They had 120 people preach the gospel. God moved, and now all of a sudden they had 3,000 in one day. That can't be replicated. It can't be put in a church program box to be sold and distributed. It has to be a sovereign move of God's spirit through his word. 
as he sees fit and he saw fit to do it this day. Absolutely amazing. And so look what happened here in Jerusalem. There's a revival. Thousands respond. They get baptized. Peter encourages them with many words. And he says, be safe from this perverse generation. We could say that today too, right? So then those who had received his word, verse 41, they were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. And here's what they did. Verse 42 to 47 talks about what they continually, regularly did as a body of Christ locally on the Lord's Day on Sunday, but also throughout the week as they assembled together. They were characterized by the following priorities, which fit into one of these three categories i've laid out for you what did they do they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching that is biblical preaching we already talked about that that goes on number two the edification of the saints the preaching of the word of god what else did they do uh the preaching of the word of god and also to fellowship that's under edification and to the breaking of bread that's part of worshiping god proclaiming his name until he comes again the Lord's Supper, communion, and also to prayer. That is also worship of God, but it can also be edification. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. It's not just, Christianity is not just an intellectual, stoic religion. It is intellectual, it is thinking, but we are holistic beings and our emotions are affected as a result. And they were overcome with awe, a sense of awe, a feeling of awe. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, not every Christian, the apostles, the representatives of Jesus. And all those who had believed were together. See, there it is. Together, assembled as the church and had all things in common. They were a spiritual family. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as everyone had need. The, the, it worship. Uh, the, Verse 46, it continues, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread, that's communion from house to house, small group ministry, Bible studies, prayer meetings. They were taking their meals together, fellowship meal, with gladness and sincerity of heart. And verse 47, praising God, praising God, corporately together, whenever they met, that is worship of God, exaltation. Priority number one, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved. So, Priority number for the local church, priority number one is exaltation. We need to come, priority number one, and worship Christ. And may we never lose that focus. Number two, priority number two is the edification of the saints. This is priority number two. This comes before evangelism, by the way. It really does. Chronologically, logically, theologically, you cannot be an effective evangelist until you are equipped by edification i also mean equipping edification has to do with training god's people speaking to god's people teaching primarily from the word of god who they are in christ and what they're responsible to do on behalf of christ and evangelism is one of the main things god's people are called to do so a local church needs to be in the business of edification equipping and building up the saints and i would say the priority of a local pastor first and foremost is to his local congregation, and his people, his sheep. That is 1 Peter 5. That's Jesus to Peter. Three times in John 21, before he ascended on high, he went to Peter, who would be the first chairman of the elders of the first Jerusalem church, one of the first pastors of the foundational church. And before he told Peter to evangelize into the world, in that passage, three times he said, shepherd my people, Tend my sheeple, uh, sorry, tend my people and tend my sheep. Sheeple, yeah, that's a good word. Uh, that's what we are. 
So Peter was first and foremost a pastor of the local people. And that's what we need to do. GBF needs to be in obedience to Scripture and making a priority of first edifying the saints, equipping the saints, giving them the tools so that they can go out and do ministry in their own life, in their home, in their family, in their neighborhood, in the community, the rest of the world. That's the order that God has laid down for us. Edification, equipping the saints. Go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 4 since we're talking about it. Over the years, not just at this church uh, for going on 10 years, but at other times, uh, people... Christians you interact with, and they have just different ideas for whatever reason. Oh, you're a pastor. You should be, uh, how's the management of your soup kitchen that you're leading? Uh, I don't lead a soup kitchen. Well, you should be. <laughs> you're, the, you're a pastor at a church. Well, I, no, actually, I don't. I don't have time. What do you mean you don't have time for that? Well, I, I don't have other priorities. What are those priorities? Well, they're right here. So let's look. Ephesians chapter 4. These are like true stories I'm telling you, by the way. I remember when we started GBF, we were maybe one month old, and a local pastor, great guy, brother in the Lord, we became friends, he was a, a head pastor at a local church, a good church, Bible church in this area, and he called me into his office. I'd never met him before, he said, oh, and so I went to meet him, and he said, yeah, I heard about you, I heard about this Grace Bible Fellowship thing, sounds exciting. Uh, you sound like my kind of a man. Uh, and then he went, and basically, and I'm like, wait, why is this guy calling me into his office? And basically, what he was telling me is he wanted me to join his church and be about his work because his work at his church was all about evangelism and reaching the community. And he went on for about 45 minutes saying that the priority, we've got it messed up in the church. We need to be reaching the community. That's priority number one. We need to be reaching unbelievers. We need to be going out and doing car washes. We need to be going out and having unsaved, uh, unbelieving Bible studies. And we need a lot of uh, satellites. And I need you to head up one of my satellites. Now, I'm already working at Grace Bible Fellowship. I've already been hired. The church has already started. I need you to come here and work for me and be one of my satellites. Because really, that is the most important thing. You know, and he actually challenged me. You know, you're just going to be there each week and throughout the weekend on Sunday with Christians. And he he was making me feel guilty. You're, you're gonna, you mean you're just going to be a pastor and be there with fat, sassy, needless Christians every week? That's not the need of the world. The whole world is lost. We all need to be missionaries. And he's getting all fired up, and I'm, I'm feeling more and more guilty, like I need to go home and quit my job. And, whoa, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling guilty because I like Christians, and I want to feed them and teach them and help them and counsel them and pray with them. Wow, why would I want to do that? Um, so that was a very confusing conversation. I didn't know what to think. And so I left and quite really didn't talk to anybody about it. This is true confessions today, by the way. I think this is the first time anybody's hearing this story. And this is like 10 years later as I absorbed that, thought through that. I was like, wow, the problem with that is he's, he was totally off base in terms of what the priority of the local church was. To marginalize and dismiss God's people in the local church and say they don't need a shepherd? I did at one moment say, well... You know, the difference between me and you, because he didn't convince me while I was there, but I didn't have a lot to say. I said, I think you're an evangelist. And that's Ephesians 4. That's the difference between me and you. God has wired us differently. He's gifted us differently. And you are a passionate, amazing, outspoken, effective evangelist. And I'm, I'm a pastor. Our duties are different. We're supposed to complement one another, not do the same thing. Because we'll have greater growth as a result. So I, I did manage to get that out. And it fell on deaf ears. He, he didn't buy that. 
So that was so with that, let's look at Ephesians four, where uh, you've got the work of Christ. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends back into heaven. He now endows the church. He starts the church. He endows the church corporately with the spirit of God. Then he puts the spirit of God in every individual Christian. And then he gives them gifts in verse seven. Every Christian gets a gift. It says Christ's gift. And the end of verse eight gifts to men in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. And some of those gifts are delineated in verse 11. And some of these gifts are men or positions of ministry. And those are the ones in verse 11. And Christ, the risen Christ, who started the church with his spirit, who wants his church to become unified and grow to the point of maturity is the point of the chapter. How do you get to the point of maturity as a local church and the church universal? It is through the gifting of Christ using his people to build the church. That's the whole theme. And key in this is leadership. And there are different kinds of leaders in the church. Not everybody's called to be Billy Graham, the evangelist, or a pastor, or whatever the role is. Verse 11, and Christ gave some, not everybody, some, as actually few, as apostles, and some as prophets. They laid the foundation of the church. We have no more apostles and prophets today. He also gave some as evangelists. We have evangelists in this church. We have some true evangelists in this church. They are a blessing to us. They are a model to us. They are a blessing to those around them. They accentuate our ministry. We are to complement and equip their ministry. Some as evangelists, some as pastors. We have right now five pastors at our church. They're elders. We're raising more as we pray to the Lord. And teachers, we have some who are teachers as well, who teach in all kinds of different capacities. Somebody right now, Rebecca Milko, teaching our children is fulfilling this gift in children's church. She's a teacher. For what? The equipping of the saints. To give them the tools they need spiritually. The saints, that's all believers. So that they will do what? So that they can do the work of service or they can do the work of the ministry. Who's supposed to do the ministry in the local church? Not just the pastor, not just the hired hand, not just the elders. Every Christian. That's what it says. That's the mandate. And they need to be equipped. They need to be encouraged. They need to be edified. It needs to be modeled. They need to be given opportunities. And the saints corporately need to do the ministry in the local church. Hence the priority and the importance of edification of the saints. After exaltation of Christ. We can't lose focus of that. And add 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 to this edification process of equipping saints. How do we, how do we equip saints? How do, primarily it's through the word of God. Teaching the word of God. The living word of God. Right here. This is the mind of God. This is what God thinks. This is what God wants. It's all right there. It's the manual. The divine manual from God. It's authoritative. And that's what it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the word of God, scripture is God breathed, the very writings themselves, and it is adequate, it is sufficient, it is enough for what? For teaching believers, for equipping believers. For, for what? So that they might be complete or mature Christians in every area of life. That's the teaching of that passage. We equip the saints through the living word of God. So that they can do biblical ministry. So priority number one, exaltation, worshiping Christ. Priority number two, edification, equipping the saints. Priority number three, after we have exalted Christ and worshiped him, giving him his due, and also done proper edification and equipping of believers in the pews and in small groups and face-to-face and wherever you are, then more and more you are equipped, you are motivated, you are trained to be an effective evangelist wherever you go.
for 10 years. People have asked me here and there at different times. So what's your evangelism program there at GBF? What, tell me about your evangelism program. Uh, from day one, we, did, we don't have an evangelism program. We don't have one. Uh, we never will. <laughs> we have people with the gift of evangelism who are empowered by Almighty God, and we want to learn from them and model them and have people associate with them and encourage their ministry and learn from them and utilize them. So it's not a program, it's people. That's how God works. So I guess we do have a program. So if you want to, if you're involved in the, if you want to be involved in our evangelism program, just talk to James Bynum. He's our, he's our evangelism program, dear brother, along with several others of you who are gifted in this area. But this is a mandate of the church. Uh, evangelization, that's point number three, reaching the lost. It is an absolute priority of the church. And every Christian needs to be involved in this. Every Christian needs to be able to answer the question. So when was the last time or the first time you ever shared the gospel with an unbeliever? Hopefully, if you're a Christian, you can at least think of one time. One time. Because that's what Jesus has called us to do as believers. To evangelize. So uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's go ahead and look at that. And then we will uh, look at Matthew 28 because it is so important. So Acts 1, the context, Jesus died he rose again from the dead for 40 days he's with his disciples he's still teaching and preparing them and answering their questions and gives them the evangelism mandate in acts chapter 1 verse 8 it's amazing um and he answers one of their questions verse 7 he said to them it is not for you to know the times or the epics uh you don't need to be preoccupied with how the world is going to end right now because we, we got some time jesus <laughs> we got at least two thousand years so don't worry about that Here's what you need to do in the meantime. Here's how you occupy yourself faithfully. And here needs to be your focus. Uh, after exaltation of Christ and the edification and equipping of the saints, you need to be about, verse 8, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and then you shall be my witnesses. There it is. We witness on behalf of Christ to the unsaved world. Be my witness. Where? Well, and there's even a strategy. In Jerusalem, that's in your own backyard where you are. You start where you are. You start in your house. You start in your family. You start with your neighbors. You start at work, and you just go from there. Then you go uh, Northern California, America, the rest of the world. And if all Christians did that all over the world, then basically what happens with, through the networking is the whole world is covered. That's how it works. Jesus, that, that is a master plan. Genius. Be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. And the implication is you need to go. Be, be my witness means don't stand here and be my witness. Go and be my witness. And that's exactly Matthew 28. Let's, let's check it out. Matthew 28. Familiar Great Commission. Same thing. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. One of the last things he said to his, not just his 12 apostles, but many disciples. Based on 1 Corinthians 15, it could be 500 disciples who were here in Matthew 28 who heard this. The Great Commission, starting at verse uh, 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them, his disciples, huge crowd, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, the New American Standard says, go, go, go. And that's legit. That's a, a verbal form. And so you need to go. You need to scatter. We gather for worship. We gather for exaltation. We gather for edification with the saints. We gather for equipping with the saints. We scatter for evangelism. That's the New Testament model. Today, a lot of churches have it backwards. For whatever reason. Jesus said, go and evangelize. 
Go and be lights. Go and be salt. Go and be light. You can't be salt and light, really, in a biblical church. Because everybody's got a flashlight and you're just shining in each other's face. Salt and light. Go where it's dark. Go where there's no believers. Go where it's difficult. Go where it's hard. Go where there's resistant hearts. Go where you have to depend upon God, prayer, His Word, the Spirit. And then try to be a witness. Go. That's what a witness is. And this imperative. Go, go, go. Scatter, scatter, scatter. Today, many churches... Uh, let's bring in as many as believers as we can every Sunday so we can preach to them in our comfortable church inside our walls on our terms and our comfortable pews. Then we said we did evangelism and then we don't have to go out and do it because that's scary and hard. Really? We welcome unbelievers. Absolutely. First Corinthians 14, there were a few unbelievers in the worship service, but they didn't cater to unbelievers. They didn't do worship on the terms of the unbelievers. They did Worship on the terms that God has laid out in Scripture. And it doesn't say the seekers were pacified or appeased. Paul said, if a sinner comes with the saints when they're worshiping, is overwhelmed with awe and is convicted. Convicted of sin because of what they heard, because of no compromise with God's people. That's the perspective. That's the biblical model. Go, go, go. Go, therefore, So you go first. That means evangelize, share the good news. Some will believe. And then as a result, that's part of the disciple making process. And you baptize them and you identify them in the local church. And then you teach them till they die or Jesus comes. All that Jesus has commanded. That is the biblical mandate, evangelism of the lost. If you had a hard time answering that question earlier, have you when was the first time or the last time you evangelized someone or gave the seeds of the gospel? and you can't remember, or you've never done it, or it's been a really long time, where do you start? Well, you start with, here's an easy way to do it. Three easy ways to work on this discipline. Start praying. God, uh, change my heart. Give me a heart for the lost. God, give me courage. And God, give me opportunity. You know, that's a scary prayer, because I guarantee God will answer that prayer, because it's in keeping with his will. Another easy thing to do is hang out with the evangelists. Walk in their shadow. Follow them. Go with them when they have opportunity. Watch how they do it. Be their encourager. Be praying for them while they are sharing. And then the third one with evangelism, this is what I found to be very helpful, is just tell your own story. Well, I don't know what to say, and I I forgot that program and how to lay it out and which verses to quote. No, start with your testimony. You say, here's what what Jesus did to me. I know Jesus is real because here's what he did to me. Like the blind guy in the Gospel of John. Oh, I know you educated Pharisees who were picking on me. I was blind, and now I see, and Jesus did it. Amen. That's evangelism. This is my story, and you, you have the most unique story in the world. The common denominator is Jesus changed you. They can't deny, and also they can't argue with your story. They, can't, they can argue with you about uh, evolution versus creation. They can argue with you about the definition of the Trinity and maybe even make you look silly. One thing they can't argue with about is your testimony and your story of how Christ saved and changed you. And the gospel is ensconced in your story, and the Holy Spirit of God puts that in their mind, their conscience, their soul, and the Spirit of God continues to work on it, water it, protect it, and bring that person to salvation. It's awesome. So there's just uh, three things over the years that people have told me and that I have found to be beneficial. So with that... We just ask God to help us. The GBF would stay focused and not get confused with the very loud 
dissonance of fog out there that's being advocated and proposed all the time and that will be committed first and foremost to the exaltation and worship of Christ, to the edification and equipping of our saints, that's you, and that all of us will go out in the power of the Holy Spirit to faithfully and continually plant the seed of the gospel to unbelievers that they also might be saved. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the privilege to look to your scriptures. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. Thank you for the clarity of your word, God, and the, the fact that it's relevant after 2,000 years. And we know it's living. Uh, God, help every believer here, uh, no matter what church they're affiliated with, out of a heart of love for you to keep these priorities in mind of uh, ceaselessly worshiping you always being willing to learn and grow because we none of us have arrived and keeping our hearts soft and sensitive towards those around us who don't know you there will be a mouthpiece for you and we just we thank you we think of the story that Jesus told that every time a sinner repents, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. We know that's you, Father. You are the one that rejoices over obedience of saints and salvation of sinners. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 650- six three zero 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 nine